always got utter belief in him. And somehow she's found the acceleration. Welcome everybody to this week's edition of the Let's Run.com Track Talk Podcast. We've got another fantastic episode for you this week. The Japanese have broken the marathon. The national record has fallen. 40 Japanese men broke 210 in the marathon in one race in Lake Biwa over the weekend. We've got an incredible run from superstar freshman Athing Mo. She runs 158 to smash the collegiate record for 800 meters at the SEC meet. We've got the Texas qualifier happening. Northern Arizona loses its conference meet in cross country. Shelby Houlihan's dreams are crushed by USATF, but USATF actually puts on a meet, actually make that 11 meets. So we've got a spring schedule there. And Paul Chalimo on Thursday is going American record hunting. So plenty to discuss on the podcast this week. Yeah, John. Plenty to discuss, and I don't know if I'm going to be on top of my game. I'm a little bit nervous here. I may have stepped in it. I heard about this Paul Chalimo thing on Monday Monday night or Monday afternoon. Got in touch with Scott Simmons, and I'm like, hey, is anyone streaming this? He's like, no, I'd love to stream it. I don't want it behind a paywall. So like, I was like, okay, dude, I've been complaining about commentating and broadcast forever. We'll do it. So I've committed Let's Run to broadcasting this thing live hopefully it works out john i'm hoping you can remotely help me commentate and let me make me look smart so you heard it here folks first 6 p.m thursday night paul chalimo and his fellow runners will be going for the american record it's very fast 1301 can we see the first sub 13 in u.s history the women are running at 1530 i mean excuse me at 530 but the men is the big one and when I talked to Scott briefly last night, I was super pumped about this. They've got pacing lights. They've got, he's not even sure that Chalima's going to win the race. He said, I forgot which guy he said. Um, somebody else is in super shape. So they're going to have two sets of pacing lights. The fast one's going for 13 flat. The second set is going for 13, 13, John. That's how good this group is. It's insane. So it should be really exciting. Free and live on letsrun.com. I did tell Paul, Paul, if I, if I screw this, I will pay you. $1,000 if I don't broadcast it live. So I'm on the hook. I'm a little bit nervous. I don't know if I have corporate approval. Weldon, help me out. John, I, ca- I called Robert's bluff, actually. Scott just sent me a press release, and I then he made a correction. I wrote back within like 30 seconds, and then we were just on the same email chain, like almost real time. And he's like, need help. I wouldn't mind streaming, but have barebone staff. Any suggestions? And I just said, yeah, us. <laughs> so Robert's bluff has been called. He's stepping up from broadcasting Ivy League to hopefully broadcasting Paul Chilimo's American record. Yeah, do you guys want to discuss the chances of this first or lead with a thing, Mo? I guess, I guess since we brought up the race, let's talk about it. So last night, I talked to Scott about 9.30 at night as I was trying to put my son to sleep to make sure we were a go for the streaming. And he, he shared some fascinating things. I wish I had tape, tape recorded the call, but I'll try to give you a cliff notes version of what we talked about um this race he's just desperate for his guys to compete um they have most of them haven't run in over a year and since most of them are in the wcat program they haven't been allowed to compete in a lot of races they actually trained several members of these of the team trained for that marathon project we're ready to go we're in great shape and then with the covid cases rising the army pulled the plug so he 
researched all of the indoor tracks in America and tried to find which ones, which states had the lowest COVID rates. Virginia fit the bill. So then they got the Army approval, and there it go. So he's very excited about it. They've been in a bubble. They're going to have the facility just to themselves. So the Army should not be worried about the COVID on that front. And yeah, this facility, just to clarify, this is the brand new one that has just opened in Virginia Beach, 200 meter bank track. And he was very into everything. He's like, look, this way we can control the bank of the track. It's a hydraulic bank. We can put it at the, at the right height for the 5,000. We, he actually is very worried about the, he's like me, apparently obsessed about the weather and said, you know, I wish I asked them to, to lower the, the temperature. He's like, they can't do that because there's offices and stuff like that. It's going to be 65 degrees. He would like it to be even a little bit lower, but he, he's very into that. Um, he said, you know, if you look at other 10 Ks, he's like the army would have never approved them to go out to, the, to California because the COVID cases are, are so high. Um, but he was actually, he talked about that, about the 10,000 in, um, in uh, California with the BTC guys. He was shocked. He was surprised that it went that fast because he said, look, look, only one U.S. 10K at Stanford in the last 10 years has gone under 27, 28. So he was very impressed by that. Oh, the reason why I'm mentioning 10,000, why am I mentioning 10,000? Because this 5,000 run is actually a trial run for the 10,000. Yes, that's right. You heard it first. Indoor 10,000 at Virginia Beach in two weeks where all these guys are going to go for the 10,000 meter qualifying time, including Paul Chalimo. So while Chalimo bombed that 10K recently or last year or year before last, He's never given up on the 10. He's going for the 10. So that's the breaking news I have. But in terms of this 5,000, he's extremely pumped for it. He said Chalim was in great shape, as was one of his teammates. I can't remember which one he said. said he wouldn't be shocked if Chalim lost the race. But they're having two pacing lights, one at 13 flat and one at 13-13, which seems rich, John, because the slow group is going in 13-13. I mean, that's pretty remarkable. Yeah, well, I'm looking at the entries here. So here's who we've got. We've got Chalimo, who's obviously run 12.57. Then Leonard Correa, 13.15. Lovell Lang, 13 flat, but he hasn't been close to that shape in eight years. Anthony Rotich, 13.31. Emmanuel Bohr, 13.10. Elkana Cabet, I mean, he's a marathon at 13.44. And then you, no one else is faster than 13.45. I just, I, I guess I could see Correa being pretty fair. I guess I could see Rotich being pretty fair and Bohr. Lawi, I don't know about him, but... I don't know. I'm struggling to see. Like, you really think we're going to get four or five guys here under the Olympic standard of 13-13? I find that hard to hard to envision. Especially like Chalimo. Look at his most recent. I mean, obviously he's got quality, but 2019 was not a great year for him. He got seventh in the World Championship final after meddling in 2016 and 2017. 2020, he won USA indoors, but really didn't race at all. You know, until the fall where he got ma- beaten by Mason Furlick in cross country. Now Mason Furlick's in pretty decent shape right now. Ran 13:25 in that humidity in Austin, and then he ran a 10k on the roads in 28:13 on New Year's Eve. But I don't know. I feel like. I do like that they're going for big goals, but you say this is kind of also a tune-up for a 10K. I'm, I'm struggling to see an American record happening here, Robert. Okay. Okay, John, that's fine for you. Just doubt the guy that basically dominates the Olympics uh, 5,000, 5, 10,000 at the last trials. These guys like what, took up most of the spots, it seemed like, if I remember correctly. The 5,000 and the 10,000 of the last trials. What The Olympic trials, you're saying? What do you- yes, John. Okay, that yeah, Leonard Correa, of the guys who are running in this meet, Leonard Correa and Leonard Correa made the team. 
and Paul Chalimo barely made the team. Those are the two guys who made the team out of this group. So John's going to discount Paul Chalimo, who for barely <laughs> making the team, even no, though no. he won the silver medal. Yeah, yeah. No, sorry. I'm being a little facetious there. But I'm just, I think it's a, it's aggressive. And look, it could be, this is one of these cases. These guys have been slaving away at altitude for months. They finally get an opportunity to race. They come out and blast it. That certainly could happen. But I think 1301, I mean, we're just, I know we have the super shoes and everything. That's still pretty freaking fast time, especially to do indoors in February, March now, I guess. I'd be impressed with 1313 because we haven't seen any, you know, Olympic standards by anybody in the U.S., you know, this year in the, in the 5,000, right? No, I don't think so. But they've got great pacing. They're going to have Willie Fink pacing in addition to the two sets of lights from the light speed racing system, um, So, which was the one you actually we saw in the Texas qualifier last week. So Willie Fink, who's run 750 indoors this year, is going to try to run basically that pace because you need to hit 750 to run 13 flat. If you're wondering, you know, 13 flat seems fast, everybody. What pace is that? I mean, 1301, which is the American record for game up, is almost exactly, it is exactly 410 per 1600. 625, 625, 625. The whole way that gets you to um, 1230, then add a 31, and, and you're at 1301. So 624 is 13 flat. That's what the pacing system is going to be at. And then um, there's going to be one at 1313. He's kind of hoping that they run together as one big group. So clearly they're in shape. I asked him about this. I expressed some of the skepticism you did, John. Um, again, it was a 939. I wasn't really prepared to you know, grill him at the time. But he said, look, these guys have not raced in a long time. They're super motivated. And I was t- I kind of pushed back on the shoes thing. He's like, to me, he's like, a big part of this is huge training blocks, huge motivation. When you have something taken away from you, you miss it. You're all in. And he seemed you know, really excited about everyone's fitness. Maybe the, the, the tune-up statement about the 10,000 wasn't the right thing, but they are going to be doing a 10,000. That seemed a little bit weird to me too, John. He's like, well, we got the 10,000. You know, and we got, well, if we're getting ready for the 10,000, we might as well do a five. And I thought, well, you just might as well do a five and you break 13 in it. That seems rich. But um, when you control all the conditions, we've seen it with Jerry's guys. When you control, control, control the conditions and get exactly what you want. And as he said, this isn't really a race. They're just getting in a line and they're running. And... You get the momentum and stuff like that. Also, a women's race. Significant in the fact that, folks, 2017 NCAA cross-country champion Edna Kurgat is in it. Perhaps more importantly, she's now an American citizen. Yes. Uh, she got her citizenship last month, and I asked Scott about this. He said they have filed the paperwork for a transfer of allegiance to represent the United States uh, and still waiting on World Athletics approval on that. But I don't think she's represented Kenya ever, you know, in a major competition. So I wouldn't imagine that would be an issue for her. Uh, and she, you know, she was really, I'd be more excited about that development if she was sort of in the form she was in a few years ago. But she really, she kind of tailed off a little bit in New Mexico her last couple of years. Or is at least, at the very least, overshadowed by Wayne Kaladi, you know, her last season. So podcast listeners, get the word out. We're trying to step up to the plate to get this streamed for you for free. Scott had some people over that wanted to put it behind a paywall. He really didn't want to do that. He's letting us do this. We're trying to help out the sport. 5.30 for the women, 6 o'clock for the men. It's Thursday night. We're going to try to blast it out there on YouTube, Twitter, whatever we can get, all of the streaming platforms that we have. So ch- check them out. Should be good. Should be exciting. All right, Robert, I think it's time to talk about a thing, Mo, because this, this for me was the single 
most notable performance of the weekend. I know we did have a Japanese record in the marathon, but in terms of our audience, at least, an Amer- a 19-year-old American, or actually, I think I think she's only 18 right now, running 158.40. I mean, she destroyed the previous indoor record for the NCAA, and she also beat Raven Rogers' outdoor record of 159.10. Just a phenomenal run here. It was a world under 20 record as well indoors. I mean, I, I was still pretty... She had been amazing all season. So I was thinking like, hey, sub sub two is possible at some point. But 158.40 to do it, I mean, it was a remarkable run at SECs. It was, and I'm glad that you're leading with it, John, because I think some people think, oh, she's super good. This isn't that surprising. There's a difference between thinking someone can do it and actually doing it. And she'd been stuck sort of in that 201 range for a couple of years. I, I mean, I know COVID had, had, had a lot to do with that, but... You know, it's kind of like Mary Kane, John. When they're a teenage woman, I still want to see the PRs coming down. I want to see them coming down. And, okay, we had maybe had a stagnation because of COVID because she skipped two flat and 159 in the same race and went down from 201 to 158. Remarkable. We'd seen the 400 speed. Yes, you would have thought that, okay, if you can run 50 flat, you should be able to run 158. But there's a big difference between, you know, <laughs> being a 400 runner and being an 800 runner. She, she joked on Twitter, I wanted to show people that I'm an 800 runner. Okay, we're not doubting you now. Well, maybe we should be, John, because this morning, the NCAA entries are out. You just texted me before we started recording. Apparently, is it true? She's only running the 400 at NCAAs. That's correct. I mean, I assume she'll run a leg on the 4x4 as well, but she's in the 400. And of course, I mean, she's the top seed there. And here's the thing, Robert. Her PR is 50.52. We know she split 50.03 earlier this year, which is one of the fastest indoor 4x4 splits in history. Now, her PB is 50.52. The American record and the collegiate record is 50.34. I mean, would you be at all shocked if she gets on that Arkansas track next week and, and breaks that and then she's the American record holder in the indoor 400? Because I wouldn't. I think that's certainly on the table. And I think she's certainly the favorite. Maybe she's not the heavy, heavy, heavy favorite that she would be in the 800, but she's still a pretty significant favorite in the 400 too. I think it's, I actually like the fact that she's running the 400. I I think that, yes, no, I would not be surprised at all if she breaks the American record. I want to see the sub 50. And if she goes sub 50, her marketability goes up even higher to, to, to get the American record in that event. You know, let's be honest. This is she's having a great time. Pat Henry's really enjoying her. He's calling her perhaps maybe the greatest freshman athlete in the history of Texas A and M. She's one and done. We all know it. That's what I'm saying. Right? Like, uh, but I hope when she goes pro that unlike Donovan Brazier, it seems like when he went pro, he wasn't all really allowed to train there anymore. Pat, let her. She's enjoying college. Why can't you hang out with the team and, and still train? Or one thing I thought about John: Is it possible with these new? NCAA rules, could you go pro and still run college track? You get your endorsements? Because she really is seeming to be thriving here. Well, I don't think that rule is fully, it hasn't sort of been activated yet. And second, from my understanding, I I don't think you'd be able to do that. Uh, They haven't clarified the language, so it's sort of, we're still flying blind at the moment on that. But I mean, I'm very interested. I think she'll win NCAAs, but I'm very excited to see what she does. But I'm more interested now. I mean, 158.4, you run that. That's the second fastest time ever by an American indoors. Only RJ Wilson, her American record last year at Milrose, is faster. What does this mean for Thingmo? How far does she go this year? Is she on the Olympic? Like, she's clearly at a, a very 
strong contender to make the U.S. Olympic team. But that's a hard team to make with two of the three returning medalists from the 2019 World Championships. Does she make the team? Does she make the Olympic final? Does she medal? Does she win the Olympics? I mean, that is on the table now at this point. John, I think that at this point, everything's on the table. I mean, could she go on? And I don't like this talk. Some of the message boards are like, oh, she's going to dominate the trials. She, you know, hand her a medal. She could win the Olympic gold. You know, if you dominate the U.S. trials, then you, you are the favorite for the Olympic gold. You know, assuming that the intersex women are, are not allowed back into the competition, which doesn't seem to be, why would they? When you have functional internal testicles, you should not be competing in women's athletics, in my opinion. This is a pretty easy answer for me. Um, but I don't think it's that simple. I mean, we, we sure, we've seen teenage phenoms come out of nowhere and just dominate. I, I don't think you need the experience of racing at the elite level. If you're super, if you're better than everybody else, you know how to win. I mean, we've seen it before with the likes of both Pamela Jalimo, who won Olympic gold as a teenager, and Castor Semenya. I mean, Pamela Jalimo, her first year on the circuit, she was an Olympic champion. 2008, shows up and she wins it all. And then fast forward 11 years later, or I mean, excuse me. Um, one year. One year later, 11 years, I think 2019. 2009, Castor Semenya went from 204 to 155 and wins the gold the very next year. Now, I would be surprised, you know, this is a totally different situation. Situation you're not dealing with an intersex athlete, but yes, that's a possibility. But in my opinion, and I posted this on the message board, the odds of her not making the U.S. Olympic team to me are a lot higher than her. Not a lot higher. Yeah, I'd say higher. Certainly higher than her meddling at the Olympics. I think that's a fair assessment because this team. I mean, this team's going to be very tough to make. You've got Sierra Brown and Hannah Breen, who are both 158 women, and then Rogers and Wilson, of of course. It's that's going to be one of the events of the trials is the women's 800, as it was last time. Everyone remembers that one with the fall of Alicia Montano, Brenda Martinez getting caught up in it. Kate Grace storms through to win. I mean, does Kate Grace have anything left? Uh, we'll see. But I think it's going to be a fascinating race. I think if she makes the team, I mean, she could make the team, but one of the other things is how much experience is she going to get racing, like getting in competitive races and sort of learning how to race? Because that's an important skill to develop in the 800 if you're not way better than everyone. I think she's going to be a comparable skill level to Audrey Wilson or Raven Rogers, but she's going to be beating up in college competition. She needs to get in some big time races this spring to get ready for the trials. That's true. You like to get used to get comfortable running in a pack. I mean, she hasn't run in a lot of packs, but I'm not that worried about it because I think the trials will be fast. I mean, Ajay likes to have an honest pace. So I think that it, it will, it's just going to be a, a pretty standard fast race. All thing likes to run it fast. What makes me nervous here, John, is the Olympic trials is not a one-off race. We know that all thing moved. We knew, we, we knew that she was a, 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 a a really good 600 meter runner coming into the 400, 600 runner. Well, she'd run a good 800, 800, but she's more of a four, eight runner. And at the trials, it's the third race that gets you on the team. Same thing at the Olympics, the third race gets you the medals. So uh, that to me, the strength runners generally do better at that. I don't know that she's good at that at all. So, you know, the way also, and looked at the way she ran this 158. She went out super hard, 57, right? 127. Her last 200 was only 30.8. If she runs 30.8 in the Olympic trials, there's no chance in heck that she's going to make the team because these other women, you know, so everyone acting like she's a lock for this team. I just don't, she's won 158 once in her life. You mentioned a bunch of other women that have won 158 numerous times in their lives, and they certainly are closing faster than 30.8 in those races to do so. Plus, if you factor in the super shoes, it, let's say she's only really like a 159 woman here. 
So it's a great story. I'm really happy that she's having to see a teen phenom female doing well, A, going to college, B, loving it, and C, thriving. It's just, this is what we dreamed for so many high school phenoms in the last five, 10 years, and we haven't seen them have this dream-like success. Now, some of them have stuck with it um, and, and had the success now, like with the Bowman Tag Club as a pro, um, with Cranny, right? But nothing like this. This is storybook. Yeah, it's it's terrific story. Uh, Robert, I'm going to put you on the spot right now, though. Does she make the team in the 800 meters, yes or no? No, she does not. I'm saying yes. So... I, revi- I reserve the right to revise my opinion as more evidence comes in over the next four months, but that's my take right now. And that doesn't mean that she doesn't have a bright future because the name I will remember, remind everyone of is we had this happen four years ago, very similar, superstar freshman, Texas A&M, only it was on the men's side, Donovan Brazier, 143 American record, I mean NCAA record, outdoors. That was right before the trials. What did he do at the trials? Bombed out in the first round. Yeah, things wound up okay for that guy. Uh, let's go to Lake Biwa. This marathon, look, I didn't watch it. It was in the middle of the night, American time. I, well, actually, I don't know that for a fact, but I did not watch this race. And Robert, you know how much I like to complain about races not being broadcast. I didn't even seek this one out. But it was insane. I mean, the, the times, you got to check out the week that was. We have the full breakdown, but... Kengo Suzuki breaks the Japanese record. First Japanese guy under 205. He runs 204.56. Savage move he made at the drink station. He lets some, He was with it in a pack of three. He lets the other guys go for the drinks, and then he just dips around on the outside and goes into his move and, and ends up breaking them and pulling away for the win. That was terrific. But the other numbers are just ridiculous in terms of the depth behind him. You had five Japanese men in total broke 207. That's something... I mean, that, that that in itself is insane. And then you had 40 Japanese men, 42 in total, breaking 210. Now, remember, you know, the Marathon Project back in December, we had seven Americans breaking 210. Very similar to the Marathon Project, this race, I would say, in just the, the conditions, everything was set up to run really fast. And so all the, the Americans... And it's also... The Olympians didn't run. The you know the top three from the U.S. Olympic t- trials didn't run the marathon project. The one the top three from the Japanese uh, marathon grand championship, their Olympic team, they wanted this meet either. So you can kind of see it's the same type of athletes from each country. And the Japanese results, I mean, there's no other way to put it. They put the American results to shame. Yeah, John, that's, to say that this was similar to the, Amer- to the marathon project is like saying that you're similar to Ben True and that you both ran on the Dartmouth cross-country and track and field teams. You're both highly respected graduates. The only difference is he's run 13.02 and you've never broken 14 minutes. I mean, I, I see what you're saying, but, John, this was like the marathon project on steroids. Like, 40 people in one race breaking 2.10? I had the set in the week that was. That's more than... There's only three countries in the history of the world that have ever had... Uh, 40 people break 210 ever in the history. And they did it one race. Kenya's had 478 people break 210 in the marathon. Ethiopia, 209. Japan, 146. The USA is fourth at 27. In the history of the United States, we've had 27 people. 40 Japanese guys did it in one race. And it was just amazing. It was absolutely amazing. And for the record, I would like to tell the podcast listeners, I wanted to briefly mention Lake Biwa on this podcast last week. I said, should we pre- preview it? And John, you got vehemently mad. I said, no, we're not going to waste time on that. Admit, admit to everyone you said, no, I could not talk about it. 
That sounds like something I would say. Robert, what would you have said about it? Please, please tell me which entrance you would have been looking out for and what you would have predicted. Uh, admittedly, I didn't even hype the live stream. I didn't even know what time it was. I just I was kind of into this race because I, I found an article in the, in the Japanese media about the history of the race. Um, and this is the longest running marathon in Japan. And I was just shocked that a race that's, Japan is so marathon crazy. I was like, how can this, this is the last edition of the race. It's going by the wayside because it's not a mass participation race. It's elite only. So I think they're going to sort of merge it in with some other race of soccer or something. So it's sad to me. I mean, there, this article had a, had a, had, this article was fo focused on the volunteers that have been volunteering this race for like 50 years in a row, including somebody who like remembers talking to a baby Bikile about how skinny his legs were and stuff like that. So just really, I thought it was a cool race to talk about in terms of the history. So what a way to go out. But I don't think enough talk has been given to, you know, Kengu Suzuki. He made a big move apparently in the marathon tr grand championships, their Olympic marathon trials. So, but this wasn't like his first marathon. He had already run one, two, three, four marathons. Had not broken 210 in any of them. 210-21, The actual best marathon of his was that 212-44 because that was in the super hot marathon grand championships. He, where he was seventh and was a factor in that, but he's 25 years of age. Um, and... You know, he's got good credentials in terms of Japanese track times. 27.49 is pretty good for the Japanese. So, still, what a shock, though, to, to, to just... John, when he made that move, what was it, 36K? He just hammered home. Like, 14.16 for, I think, the final 5K, something like that. It, it, it was... I, I had the stats in The Week That Was. If you haven't read The Week That Was, The Week That Was is back up. It was very similar to L.A. Kipchoge's close when he set the world record, how fast he was running, and he looked so good doing it. You know, um... Just a fantastic run. Obviously, Super Shoes had something to do with all these fast times. Speaking of which, Yuki Kawauchi, the Boston Marathon champion, he had run 81 races in a row without running a PR. He ran 208 back-to-back -back races in marathons like 20 and 21 of his career. He had run he had, he had run three 208s. He had never run 208 since. 81 races in a row. Only run two, under 210 once in his last 31 races. He now switches to the A6 prototype and runs 207. So... Congrats to Yuki. If you don't PR, just keep running. Run 81 marathons in a row, and maybe you eventually will PR. Well, Robert, one of your favorite phrases I like to repeat is, if you keep PRing long enough, eventually you'll break the world record. Looks like Yuki is back on track. It's only a matter of time until 2.139 goes down. Actually, speaking of records, I did want to mention you know the Japanese record. So it's interesting. It, a few years ago... You know, in, in February of 2018, it was 206.16 and it had stood for almost 16 years. It was Toshinari Takaoka uh, from the 2002 Chicago Marathon. And then Yuda Shitara broke it in Tokyo. And then after that, Suguru Asako broke it later that year in Chicago. He ran 205.50. And then Suguru Asako broke it again next last year, 2020, in Tokyo with 205.29. And then Suzuki breaks it, breaks it again in Lake Biwa over the weekend. So that's four times after not being broken at all for 16, almost 16 years. It's now been broken four times in the last three years. And it's very interesting because they have that big project exceed bonus. So it's one, 100 million yen, which is about the equivalent of around $1 million. And the first three times it was broken, 
that bonus paid out. So Shatara got it, and then Osako got it twice, actually. But I think that bonus fund has now been exhausted, so I feel bad for this guy. Kengo Suzuki, first guy in the history of Japan. I mean, I'm sure he'll be making some bonuses, but he's going to miss out on that $1 million or $100 million yen bonus uh, for breaking the national record. So Osako got $2 million? Uh, close to it, yeah. Because this was all incentivized to, like, you know, hype up the marathon team ahead of the home Olympics. I mean, it certainly worked, but I don't think the organizers of that bonus expected Nike to introduce a super shoe midway through the period. Well, there you go. And I, I don't want to be too negative about the shoes, but I, do I think this guy's any better than the 206-16 runner from back in the day? No, I don't. I think it's all the shoes. And there was a thread in the message board, like, why aren't the Japanese, you know, this is amazing. Like, why don't they run more majors? They, they could be factors. The, the reality is most of these guys are running 208 and 209. And it's what we said about the American Thumb Project. 208 and 209, you know, really wasn't super competitive even 20 years ago in regular shoes. And it's certainly not super competitive now. And at the elite level, as good as this story is, and it's fun to have these domestic-only races, you know, I think if, you, if he had run this time in Valencia or something like that, what, he would have been like seventh or eighth place. So um, it's cool. It's a great story. It's fun. The Japanese deserve all the praise in the world for having these corporate teams and stuff like that. I think if Americans stuck, I do think the Japanese are, are sort of culturally and probably genetically suited for the marathon. They're just the, the longer they run, the, the better they get. But I think if America, if every collegian kept running after college for 10 years, we could have a, a huge number of sub 210s. I mean, I, I, again, another thing that I posted on the message board this week was I coached at Cornell for 10 years. I think there's two guys there that I coached if they'd stuck with running at post collegially. Um, could have broken 210 in the super shoes. So, and you know, it's not like we're a super program. We're kind of like middle of the pack Ivy League cross country program, probably like 50th in the country nationally. So, multiply two times 50, there should be 100 guys doing it every 10 years in the U.S. at least. So, we've only had 27 ever do it. Yeah, I mean, that may be a little ambitious, but uh, I, I sort of I get your larger reasoning there, Robert. Do we want to go? We mentioned a thing, Mo, what she's doing in NCAA. She's only doing the 400. Do we want to discuss that briefly? The meet is until next week, but we do have the entries now, and we can see what the Oregon guys are doing. Do you have any interest in discussing that, Robert? I think next week will be the big NCAA show, but yes, briefly, we can mention it. I think last week of podcast, I said I would tell you guys what the Oregon people should do to win NCAA. Maximize their points total, yeah. I don't really think it's going to matter because I went to – Cloud training systems, they have a they have a, a meet score where you can score the NCAA descending order list. And I did it. We'll, we'll put a link to, to their – it's a software program. And I haven't – I did it last week or earlier this week, and it was remarkable. Oregon men – now, this is double entering and counting all these guys more than once, but they had 83 projected points. LSU had 48. BYU had 45. But BYU's 45 was because they had the top three seeds in the – 5,000. And none of those guys entered. So it would be shocking to me if Oregon, uh, they don't need to double these guys up, and it doesn't look like they have too much. So let's go through these entries, John. Yeah, so essentially they're big stars, that you know, the trio of 353, 350, 350-milers. You've got Cole Hawker, the sophomore. He's doing the mile 3K double. Then you've got Cooper Tia entered in the 3K only individually. I assume he'll also be doing the anchor leg of the DMR there. And Charlie Hunter, the Australian star, he's doing the 800 only, and then I'm guessing a leg on the DMR. So to me, that's, I mean, I guess the one thing you can quibble with is do you put 
tier in a 3K. Actually, did he even have a 5K time, Robert? I'm not sure if he had a 5K qualifier. No, he didn't run a 5,000 indoors, so that wasn't even an option for him. Uh, so I think they must have decided on this a while ago. So yeah, mile 3K... For, sorry, the 3K DMR seems pretty sensible for him. They might even sit... Like Cole Hawker, if he's doing the mile in 3K, those two finals are both on Saturday. They may just throw in Reed Brown or someone else because he was the 1,200 leg in the DMR, and usually that's not that important in the NCAA DMR. So I, if I were them, I would just rest him on the DMR and let him focus on his individual events and then trust that Cooper Tier, your 350 miler, is enough to win it on the anchor leg with you know Hunter hang, handing off to him. John, what's, what surprises me is, is this. I mean, Tier's the stud. I'm surprised he's not the one doubling on the events. That, that doesn't make sense to me. They, I'm wondering if this means that he's going to go for cross-country. They don't want to wear him out. He, he's doubling. He's doing the DMR anchor leg on Friday and the 3K final on saturday i mean that's that's not suit that's not easy john he's only running two races when galen rupp was a became a legend in oregon he did the 3k the 5k and the dmr he ran three races i mean come on a normal double involves running at least three races at ncaa indoors so this is the easiest possible double i'm just surprised that he's not the one doubling over someone else and one thing that's that's different right is Normally, they're alternating men's and women's competition during the same schedule. I mean, during the um, during the meet. So the double it looks like it's harder this year because it looks like, unless I'm reading the wrong schedule, John, the men are going first and then the women. So the men's mile final is at 2 o'clock, and then the 3,000 is at 3 o'clock. So they do all the men because they want to get the men out of the building and then have the women come in. So normally, you would have much more time to do the doubles. I didn't realize that. So... I think it's a smart move not to abuse him since they're they're, you know, well on their way to the team title. I think. Well, I think I think that's an astute observation, and maybe the thing with Cole Hawker, maybe he runs the mile final and then the three K is the final individual event. If they think they've got the meet locked up, they tell him, "Hey, we don't even need you to run the three K," you know, or if you, or maybe he, they need like three points to secure it, and so they're like, "Hey, just make sure you go out there and get sixth, something like that." Uh, the other thing I found interesting on the men's side, Robert, Wesley Kipp, too. He's the Iowa State star who's been, you know, unbeatable in cross country. He's entered in the 5K on Friday night. So I would assume that means he's going to be doing 5K Friday night and then NCAA cross on Monday with two days of rest in between. I guess I'm I'm slightly surprised by that. But if you think about, like, NCAA outdoors, would I be shocked if the top guy is doing the 5K, 10K double when you usually only have one day of rest in between? No, I would not. Well, I'm officially rooting for him. I think it would be legendary for him to go to the NCAs, spank all the f- track runners, and then go to the NCAs again on the cross, uh, you know, and win cross country two days later. You've got BYU sitting this one out. You got NAU sitting this one out. So earlier in the year, I, I ripped some teams for not really forming what was it their conference cross country meet. They didn't even score, which I thought was absurd. But I guess hey, if people eventually people had to most teams decided they had to decide between one or the other i don't like it so i'm officially for kip two at ncas i'll be rooting for another non-american to win the title well yeah i robert the team we ripped on this podcast was iowa for not even getting a team score at the big 10 cross country meet do you know who won the big 10 team title in men's indoor track this past weekend was it iowa it was the University of Iowa. So I think Joey Woody apparently knows what he's doing over there. 
congratulations. I still think you could have walked a few guys to record a team score. So you were last in cross country, first in track. So overall, you're about average. Now, I'm only kidding, but I do think that some of the distance-only programs, you know, we're so good at cross country. But I'm like, yeah, but you suck at track. It's very hard to be good at both. Congratulations to Iowa. People, you know, that's great. Wasn't it like their first win in like 50 years or something crazy, John? I, I don't know. Uh, and then just quickly on the women's side, I mean, Arkansas, as expected, they look to be running pretty much all their stars in the indoor champs. They may come back and run cross country, but I'm a little surprised. Like BYU looks to be entering Whitney Orton, who was their top woman. She hasn't raced since the fall. So maybe she's injured, something like that. But they they have a lot of other top distance runners and it seems like most of them are running they've entered NCAA indoors, but they also won their conference meet. I mean, they had five milers run, you know, in the four thirties at the Husky invitational over the weekend. And they also won their conference meet two days before that in cross country with none of those five in the lineup. So it kind of looks like BYU and maybe Arkansas too are trying to win both, which I think is just fascinating. Those two seem to be the top two distance programs in the country right now on the women's side. It's going to be very interesting to see how they divide their resources. Um, and shout out to Diljeet Taylor because man, like winning both, winning that conference meet and then getting your athletes to run that fast in the mile. Like every every week, it seems BYU has another top women's distance runner that I'd never heard about. So props to her for the program she's built over there. Yeah, BYU is really firing all cylinders. But when you score the NCAA descending order list for the women, I mean, our, Texas A&M actually had 68 points. They only scored like 38 or 48 at the SEC. So that's double counting nothing. Though. I don't think they're going to win because Arkansas had 67 and a half. So Arkansas is the heavy favorite in track because when you drop down to third, it's 45. So Arkansas, assuming they win in track, you know, BYU is fourth. So BYU could be a top five program. And then they go to you know, cross country a few days later and see what they can do. Go throw in NC State, maybe. It's going to be interesting, that's for sure. Definitely interesting. Okay, shall we move on? Texas qualifier, you want to talk about that real quick Wait, over the weekend, Robert? No, we're talking about teams not getting the getting the job done or doubling up and whatever. The big news collegiately was the unbeatable NAU men, the team that wins NCAA cross country every year, well, except for last year, but Definitely the heavy favorites. I don't care that they're seated, ranked number two in the country. They haven't been running their full squad. When you look at it, it's on paper. They're the favorites for the national title. At least they were until last week when they lost their conference meet. John, they held out a number of people. You've talked to Coach Mike Smith. In the past, you ripped, I think it was BYU, when they lost, they basically totally... Portland. I ripped Portland in 2017. Okay, John. So you've ripped teams in the past for skipping, blowing off the conference meet but going all in on nationals. Is that what NAU did this time? Are you critical? You've talked to Mike Smith. What do you say about it? Yeah, I, I asked him. I was like, look, he, they didn't run Nico Young. They didn't run Luis Grijalva. That's two of their top three athletes. And they didn't run Blaze Farrow, who is, you know, I, should be in their top five at NCAA Cross. So that's three of their top five guys, most likely, that they held out in the conference meet. And then they get beat by Southern Utah. And Southern Utah ran well. I mean, you're giving them credit, but... You would think if any one of those three is in the lineup, NAU wins. So I'm like, what what's going on here? You know, are we sandbagging? And he essentially told me like, look, he doesn't he doesn't like talking about the injury situation on his team, but it certainly seems to me that 
these guys are all kind of banged up. I mean, Farrow has he has a long injury history. He's you know struggles to make it through some of these seasons. Grialva, it does seem that he had some sort of injury between the track meet and then he didn't run their first cross country race in February and then he comes back for the second one and he was their I think their third man or something. He was you know he was not where you would expect right at the front with Abdi Noor and Nico Young. So with those those two I get it and then Nico Young you know again coach Smith wouldn't say exactly what happened but Nico Young was entered he was supposed to run and ended up being a late withdrawal and I kind of have to think that there was some sort of late injury issue there as well so essentially he he told, Mike Smith told me he he ran the guys he had available his priority is to get all of his athletes to the start line healthy at NCAA cross 2 weeks from now and you know, he again, Nico Young is like this massive talent. Like he's one of the he's one of the biggest prospects in American distance running we've ever seen. And he has a responsibility to guide this athlete. And if he's out there trotting him out and he's not hundred percent and he's making him run this conference meet, you know, and then he doesn't run NCAAs, people are gonna rip him for saying you're mismanaging this star talent. So I do agree NCAAs is the number one priority. And I think, look, I don't like to see schools disrespect their conference meet but i don't really think that's what was going on here i think he's just trying to keep his guys healthy uh, for ncaa's because again if he shows up to ncaa's and these guys aren't at their very best or these guys aren't racing they're going to say well why do you run them at big skies when ncaa's is the biggest priority all of that's true john i was glad when you, that when you said when you spoke to him that he puts an emphasis on the conference meet you know they were still thinking they could win this you know, I was trying to use analogies for other sports. I mean, like if you're already in the playoffs, sometimes you'll sit someone because, you know, you have a bigger game. But the conference meet is a special meet. So, you know, maybe the morality of the story is, John, it seems like you're giving him, though, a free pass on this. So if the coach talks to Jonathan Galt, he will give you a free pass. If he doesn't talk to you, you get ripped by Jonathan Galt. No, I'm only kidding. But coaches, actually, everyone in life, this is a this is a learning story for you. People are much more sympathetic if they know why you're doing something. So don't be afraid to talk to people. Explain the rationale. Once people have the reasoning, we're more likely to be forgiving. And that's true for all things in life, I think. So talk to the press more often, folks. Yeah, I just, you know, I, I generally applaud people who try to stay, stay accountable for their actions. And I do think one thing is worth noting that all three of these guys did race eight days before the conference meet. So I don't, I mean, I don't know if something changed in between or they realized that was a mistake in retrospect, uh, what was going on there or, but it makes me a little bit more worried. You know, BYU seems to be firing at least the top three or firing on all cylinders recently with Casey Kling, Connor Mance and Brandon Garnica. Does this change NAU status as NCAA favorites in your mind at all, Robert? Well, I think if they show up and run their A game, they win. I don't think it's, particular uh, i shouldn't say i don't think it's close but but it also wouldn't shock me if they show up and are just are terrible you know you have some injury scares you don't have you know it doesn't take much if you lose one or two of your top studs you aren't winning so it's interesting yeah that's the thing that to me that makes no sense is people don't want to race back to back you know so why would you run this 
you know, people always complain about regionals and conference meets being, you know, a week apart. It seems weird to me that they ran the Battleborn Collegiate Challenge on February 19th and then had this conference meet. It seemed like you would skip that. So it's weird. Like, you know, we're mad a little bit that they didn't run a full team at, at, at regionals, but you could, comp- you could argue that the Battleborn Challenge, which they ran on February 19th, you know, against Colorado, Stanford, et cetera, that if, if we're thinking about other sports, that would be like a team, instead of, you know, like Alabama scheduling some cream puff like they always do non-conference, that would be like them scheduling, you know, a big game. Like maybe they go play Notre Dame out of conference. That's what they did. NAU ran a big meet. They didn't have to run it 12 days ago. And then maybe that was a little bit too much. So, you know, if we're going to criticize them here, we need to we need to praise them for, for actually seeking out competition a few weeks ago. So it's a complicated year. I'll feel a little bit stronger about ripping people next year when we don't have these weird things going on. I know, Rob. I feel like there's been so many times where you've wanted to rip people for not racing in 2020, because and then they'll come out and they say, "Oh, I wasn't feel didn't feel comfortable traveling or all that sort of you know." Which you know, if if you don't feel comfortable traveling, I I can I can respect that. But speaking of not providing an explanation for things, that's something that USATF is famous for. And last week, or actually, it was early this week. I can't remember when. They just sent out a press release announcing that they were changing the. 2021 U.S. Olympic trial schedule. Basically, what happened was the order of the men's and women's 5Ks and 10Ks flipped, right? That's right. This was a this was a Friday afternoon news dump, Robert. So originally, the women's originally you had the women's 10K first, followed by the 5K, and you had the men's 5K first, followed by the 10K. They have now flipped it, so you have the men's 10K is first followed by the 5K, and the women's 10K is second, followed by the women's 5K, is preceded by the women's 5K. And this now mimics more closely the Olympic schedule because at the Olympics, the women's 5K is first, then the men's, then the women's 5, 10K, and at the Olympics, the men's 10K is first, then the men's 5K. Okay, so when this came out, I made it, I went to the message board, I, I linked to it and said, why is this happening? You know, and people are like, why are you being suspicious? I'm like, well, this is a group that that deserves to be suspicious. I mean, w- a couple of years ago, we literally had to take them to court because they tried to quietly change the rules for selecting the Pan Am teams. We sued them. We funded the bill, the legal bill, and that ruling was overturned. So, again, it's just what I said. Like, if you talk to people and explain it, we're not going to go into conspiracy theories. If you if you if you make a major change, but don't explain it, people are going to wonder why you're doing it. People quickly point out, hey, it's now mimicking the Tokyo schedule, at least the order of the Tokyo events. Good. That's the way it should have been all along. So I don't know why they shouldn't say that. To more mimic the, the order of events at Tokyo, we're going to have the trials do that. A, that should have been done a year ago. It should have never been this, in the wrong order in the first place. But B, just admit it. Just say it. If you don't tell us, we're going to wonder. But people act like this is a non-issue. This does affect the trials. For one... It greatly impacts Shelby Houlihan, America's great assistant star on the women's side. She before, always runs the 15, 5,000 double at USA's. The way the schedule was set up this year, she was going to do that. Now with this schedule, she's not going to do it. Is that a big deal? She was unlikely to double the 15, five at the, at the, at the Olympics. So in that front, no, but it's going to cost her tens of thousands, thousands of dollars, probably $10,000 in prize money. And then untold bonuses, maybe a number one ranking in that event. So it's not, and also it does impact the team. Like 
you know, which event is run first, depending on whether you're more of a 5,000 person, whether you're a 10,000 person, whether actually you're attempting the double or not. You know, before like someone like Ben True, right? We had him on the podcast. He's more of a 5,000 guy. He likes the 5,000 first. Before he was going to get to run the 5,000 fresh, go all in on that, and then run the 10. Now he's going to have to decide, do I want to do the 10 that might dampen me for the 5? Yeah, and just for the record here, we reached out to USATF. We asked them, why did you make this change? Uh, we heard nothing from them on this issue. So just want to get that on the record. It's just a joke. Like, like come on, people. Like, respond to the media. I'm not, I don't want to act like I'm some super important person, but this is just basic stuff. When you make an important decision, it's actually like very extremely arrogant not to say why you're doing it. Even if it was a mistake, just say we made a mistake. We want, or we want to, upon further reflection, whatever. Well, yeah, and Robert, I, now I know you'd like a good conspiracy theory, and here's the thing. If you just come out and issue a statement, you put the conspiracy stuff, well, you know, t- there's always going to be crazy conspiracy theorists. But if you give them an explanation, people will sort of be like, they'll accept it. If you say, hey, we realized it wasn't mimicking the Tokyo schedule, now that's what we're doing, I think most people can accept that. But when you just leave it shrouded in mystery and don't, uh, you know, like we said, you got to be accountable. That's all people in the media want from these organizations. So, but, yeah, that's sort of the change with the Olympic trials. Now, I need to praise, though. I, I will like to take this brief moment to praise USATF. Almost weekly on this podcast, I've praised European countries. I've praised the local meet organizers. It seems like everybody's been able to put on track and field meets recently, except for USATF. But USATF announced yesterday that they will be coming, having 11 meets, Journey to Gold Tokyo Series. It's going to be 11 track meets with over $1 million in prize money starting April 3rd, ending June 6th. So it's local domestic opportunities for people to pick up a little bit of prize money and pick up some qualifying marks, get ready for USAs. Congratulations, Max Siegel. I, 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 this actually shows to me that a, I like this because, A, they're trying to market the sport with a million-dollar purse. It makes it sound like it's a lot. I mean, a million-dollar purse over 11 meets is like less than $100,000 per meet. It's not a lot, but it's a step in the right direction. It's marketing. They've got a cool logo. Um, I always rip Max Siegel for making more than a million dollars a year, so at least now he's putting a million dollars back into the sport. So this is what they should have been doing all along. Again, or say, we're thinking about doing this instead of just coming up with it. Now, the location of one, two, three, four, five of these meets is not known. Um, three of them will be in Texas, which is just opened totally up for four of them will be in Texas. Preview AM will be hosting four of the meets. So all COVID restrictions in Texas are now over. Of course, they didn't know that because that came out after this meet came out. But, anyways. Yeah, no credit. Look, USATF, they've got the money to do it and they've put some in the to the prize money here and getting these things on. I, I commend them for that. And some of these like USATF distance classic, I mean, that's Oxy, right? So I assume like there's also one called the USATF distance open. I mean, look, if this experience in Texas has taught us anything, you need to put these meets in Southern California, you know, coordinate with Jesse Williams or whoever does Oxy, like just put it out there and you should get some pretty good opportunities for people to run fast. Right. And they're also going to do the, the uh, Adidas meet in Boston. So some of these meets are meets that already exist. They're just sort of attaching themselves, maybe providing a little bit of funding. But it's good to have a marketing. You know, USATF used to market the indoor series. So step in the right direction. When I, when I see something that I like, I need to praise it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Good job on that, USATF. Just please respond to our email about the Olympic trials. But speaking of putting on meets, there was a big meet put on in Texas. 
Austin, Texas, the home of my parents, one of my favorite cities. And it was held last weekend. Dave Alfano put it on. The Texas qualifier, they were hoping to get uh, USATF Olympic trials qualifiers on Friday night and Olympic qualifiers on Saturday. Didn't really get a lot of those in terms of the times, but it was a, it was a cool um, event. You know, they, they had drone cutage. They, they hired a production company, did a really good job on the streaming. Um, Kyle Merber and Chris Chavez did the commentary, did a nice job on it. Um, it kind of reminded me a little bit of the Olympic trials, like we're a year later from the U.S. Marathon Olympic trials. It's kind of like the distance nerds have something in the winter to geek out about. Um, so while the performances weren't great for most people, um, I was really excited to see this meet go off. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I really commend them. I thought the commentary was, I, I enjoyed the commentary at least with Chris Chavez and Kyle Merber. And I just thought, it, yeah, it was, you know, obviously the times weren't what people were hoping to hit. And that was partly due to the weather. I think partly due just some of the big names scratch. Like, unfortunately, that men's 1500, which I was salivating over, you had Evan Jager, you had Matthew Centrowitz and Donovan Brazier all entered. They all end up scratching. So it wasn't quite as exciting, but... No, I, th- I thought you got some pretty... It was a great racing opportunity. I thought the 5K with um, Craig Engels on Friday night outdueling Don Cabral, I found that pretty interesting. And I also liked the, you know, the A5K with Mason Furlick. That was a fun race as well. Do we think... Cent- is is Engels pulling a Centro here? I mean, he's running the Behe on Friday night. John, I don't... Shouldn't this be a rule we don't talk about beads? I mean, it's weird. He so I listened to his post race interview with Flow Track. He said his goal was to break fourteen minutes. So, this is a guy who's run three thirty four for fifteen hundred, and that's his goal. I mean, to me, that you know, I expected Craig to win, and he did. Like to his credit, he did. But that seems like a little soft of a goal for for your five your first. I know it's his first five k in like five years, but still. I don't know why we're talking about this, John. Are you correct publicist? It's amazing. The guy gets a lot of publicity. I mean, he's kind of fun to, to follow. But I posted, again, on the forum last night or the other day, I said, this race shows you why Matthew Centrus is an Olympic champion and why Craig Ingalls, you know, who was close, he was like fourth and fifth in the trials four years ago, has never made an Olympic team. Because Centrowitz actually has a better 800-meter PR. It's .04 better. They're basically 144, five runners. And... But you, so they got the same speed, and then you added endurance. Central is a thirteen flat runner. Craig Ingalls is a thirteen thirty six runner. So, whoa, 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 wait, Robert, this is uh, you're being absurd here. Matthew, the reason I brought this up, comparing it to Matthew Central, is because Centro did the same thing at the track meet in December, and he ran thirteen thirty two. You can't just say, oh, he's a thirteen flat. He was a thirteen flat guy in September of twenty nineteen. His most recent race, Matthew Centro, it's ran 13.32 and did the exact same thing as Craig Angles. Okay, but then even a better example, though, 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 but everyone that's worried about Centro, this is a good example of why you don't need to be that worried about Centro because his his ceiling is so much higher than the Ingles. Centro was basically in Ingles' shape right now in December. Obviously, he's had some hiccups because he hasn't raced since then, but that's all I'm trying to say there. Okay, a couple other things from this meet. Ajay Wilson, she she looked legit. I mean, she ran 158 wide to wide to win this thing. I know it was slightly slower than the thing, Mo, but for Ajay, she looked totally in control for February. I, I think this is a very good sign. Huge sign. Huge sign. Because you asked me. Watch the tape. Go back and find it, John. You asked me, should we be a little bit worried she only ran 201? You said you didn't think she looked great in her indoor race at Staten Island. I thought she looked fine. 
I thought she was working on her tactics. Ajay generally just sort of does the bare minimum to win. I thought this was called a classic Ajay race. I thought she looked fantastic. This was, though, important to me because you could say 201 wasn't good. She didn't race all of last year, so maybe you don't know how she is. I mean, why would she be falling out of her form at what age is she? I mean, she's in the middle, mid, mid-20s. She's certainly... There's no reason why she should be falling off of a cliff right now. You know, she's not a teenage woman. She's not a late, <laughs> mid, even 30s woman. So she should be running well. But any COVID doubts that you had officially eliminated with this. It was, I thought she was amazing. Amazing. This was really the performance of the meet in terms of world-class performance. Yeah, and you had you had Constance Klosterhalf and she broke the German record, 31.01. That was pretty impressive in basically a solo effort. She lapped everyone in the field, including Kira D'Amato. And in the humidity, it was a little windy. I, I thought that was a pretty good run in her 10K debut. Kira or any of coaches, Scott Rasko, if you're listening, by the way, that's one thing Scott Simmons talked to me about. He said, hey, we'd love to have Kira run the 10,000, the indoor 10,000 in two weeks. So that's an option for you if you want to get your, she got the USA standard, but not the Olympic standard. Yeah. Uh, and then the two other things I was going to highlight, Isaiah Harris, he looked a lot better than he did in Fayetteville uh, when he is into his, you know, his 800 opener this year. He won the 800, 146, 19. I thought that was a good sign for him. Good step in the in the right direction. And then the 1500 guys, I mean, Josh Thompson, and Robbie Andrews, Josh Thompson, I think they both ended up dropping out. Like Robbie said he had a calf injury. Haven't heard exactly what happened to Josh Thompson, but Robbie, that the injury stuff just won't go away, and that's kind of been an issue for him in both of his races now this year. Then Thompson, I mean, I kind of we kind of thought like Thompson, this was kind of be the year he's going to be on the Olympic team. You know, this is he was the U.S. indoor champ last year. He, you know, that's that's not a great result if you're DNFing a fifteen hundred. There's probably something more at play, but certainly I think his that wasn't a good sign if you're dropping out of a race. I've got a different take on this. John, the, 50, the men's 1500 was the one race I was really into because the quality of the fields, despite you know the withdrawals of Brazier and whatnot, was still really good. You know, the weather wasn't great for the five and tens, but to be honest, those fields weren't that great. I mean, I guess the women's ten could have been better if, if the weather had been better, but the other, the five and tens just weren't loaded enough to get those standards. But the men's 1500 was loaded, and you know, I didn't. Robbie Anders, I knew he wasn't in great shape. For him pulling out isn't good because that means the calf injury probably has come back, but. Josh Thompson, when that race finished, I immediately thought, wait a minute, this is the guy who has a lock for the team. I'm like, I guess he's no longer a lock. I texted that to my buddy. But at the same time, it didn't, wasn't really concerning to me because he ran this race extremely aggressively. This is the one race I watched live. Both, both Thompson and Johnny Gregorek went out near the front. I'm like, wow, they won it. They're ready to go. These guys look like they're almost forcing the pace. And I don't know if he pulled a muscle because I don't think he would just tie up. By the way, he didn't drop out. He finished last in 344. But when I had some time to think about it, I'm like, this doesn't concern me really for Thompson. I mean, yes, labeling him a lock for the team. Okay, that might have been stupid by me. But I don't think it was stupid, Robert. I think at the start of this season, based on how he had run in 2019 and 2020, I think it was a very smart decision. But I guess you're also, you hand out locks like they're going out of style because you get, if you're calling him a lock and then you're calling Yari Dinagusa a lock, then Centro and Engels, one of those guys isn't going to make it. There's no room for anyone else. I feel like maybe you should, uh, yeah, maybe you're not, sh- shouldn't be giving out locks like that. But what I'm saying is like the way, the more I thought about that, like, he ran so aggressively, he wouldn't have done this unless 
he thought he was in great shape, and unless Jerry Schumacher thought he was in great shape, and these, Jerry's not an idiot, so I assume the training's been going well. We don't have proof of that. It's kind of like Ajay Wilson. We'll need to wait to get proof, but there's no reason why, barring injury, this guy's ceiling is extremely high, and his ceiling is a lock for the team, in my opinion. Not that worried about it, but obviously my, his performance didn't increase his, his odds of, of making the Olympics in any stretch of the imagination. Okay, let's talk one other thing I want to talk about, Bauman Track Club, while we're on the topic. I just pulled up the Let's Run homepage, Robert, and I just saw this post, and I'm kind of surprised by it. This is from four days ago, but we're going to react to it like it's breaking news. Mark Scott, who is supposed to be running the European Indoor Championships, has withdrawn. Instead, he said, have decided to withdraw from the European Indoor Champs and focus on my training here in the US and looking to hit a fast 5K on March 6th. Big one coming. So... You know, we kind of ripped Elliot Giles for on the message board for you know choosing to focus on training ahead of instead of the European Indoor Championships. Now Mark Scott, who already has the Olympic trials, the, uh, the Olympic standard in the 5K, by the way, is going to be pulling out of that meet to run, you know, essentially a fast 5K. Maybe he's trying to break 13 or something. What do you think of this move? This is insanity. He's running a fast 5K on March 6th. This is what's wrong with our sports. I guess maybe the army guys need a bubble. Why hell? Why doesn't he go to my indoor five thousand record attempt? They're going to have pacing lights and stuff. Who's running a march? They're running an outdoor March six five thousand. Who's going to be in it? I don't know who else is in it. This must be Jesse Williams' meet. Okay, here's the entries: Robert Brandt, Kirabella Rasa, Grant Fisher, Joe Klecker, Bia Simbasa, Mark Scott, Oliver Hoare, Morgan Badal, Kieran Tantavate, Sean McGordy. And this is in California. Oh, I mean, I don't know. I, I guess it's cool. I just, I wish that the Paul Chalimo guys could race these guys, you know? I wish, I I mean, I'd like to see him run the 3K at Euro Indoors. Yeah, I, the, the more I think about this, wait a minute. This is insanity. You commit to your country, you're going to run in a, in a championship with your team, and then a butter option comes up and you just beg out. This is what's wrong with our sport. Like, I mean, and then not only that, like, why can't these guys just run in the indoor 5,000 that's going on with Paul Chalimo? So, I mean, I guess all these groups during COVID, they kind of have to plan their own thing. And Scott Simmons can't get the, the WCAP approval. And then Jerry's doing his own thing. And I just wish that somehow we could all work together. Imagine if this was just one super race with everyone in it. Going for the 13 flat timing mat, you know, tomorrow. No, I mean, I don't even care, but I don't, I'm not excited about him dodging one time trial to run a different time trial. Like, I would rather him run a European Championships. Look at this field Jakob Ingebrigtsen, Marcin Lewandowski, Philip Ingebrigtsen. Go race those guys for a European medal for something that matters. Oh, like, that, that's, a good, that's a good point. I forgot that the field was loaded. The more I think about it, this is really, really bad. Sanity. People want to know why the sport's not popular. Some guy who's never won a medal in anything, okay, he won an NCAA title, is going to s- just skip out on getting to compete for his country against the best. Jacob Ingenbrook is not good enough for you just to see how fast he can run some meaningless time trial when he's already got the standard. If he didn't have the standard, I could maybe contemplate him doing this. Maybe, but not really. And Dude, Mark, you're eventually going to find out how fast you are in the 5,000 this year. You're going to have plenty of chances to run fast. You don't need to find out on March 6th whether you're in sub-13 shape or not. You should be representing your country 
Racing Jacob Ingebrigtsen, the adults needed in the room need to get in charge and tell people like, let's run in some actual races. I mean, these time trials are fun. We're going to be broadcasting one tomorrow because it gives us something to do. But actual competition, championships are what the sport's supposed to be about. Shame on Mark Scott. Shame on the Bowerman Track Club for condoning this. Wow, that is Rojo's rant right there. I mean, look, the one thing I would say in his defense is like, okay, it's a long way to fly to Poland from the West Coast of the United States. But also, like, I assume this is just going to be sort of the end of... This was when a normal indoor season would end, right? In a normal championship year. I feel like you go out there, you blow it out, you run a championship, you take a week or two off, and then you start, you know, you get into the Olympics. Maybe that's not Jerry's plan, but yeah, I can't condone doing a time trial when you could go up and actually run for a medal that counts. And especially when he already has the Olympic stand in the 5K. All right, Robert, we should probably wrap this up pretty soon. I want to talk one more piece of news we had this week. The Boston Marathon has said that they are going to be limiting the field. They haven't said exactly how much smaller it will be than in years past, but it is going to be smaller. They want to keep the actual in-person field the same sort of ratio so they're going to have 80 percent by qualifying time and 20 percent sort of by charity and you know other sort of ways to get into the field and then they're allowing up to seventy thousand virtual entrants which i find interesting because the london marathon uh just a few weeks ago announced they want fifty thousand virtual entrants and fifty thousand in-person entrants boston's doing a little bit different they're saying up to seventy thousand virtual entrants but they're not going to say how many in-person entrance for their race. And that's October 11th is Boston this year. This is another disgrace. Why are they doing this? Why? It's March 3rd. We don't think by October 11th, COVID is going to be gone or basically not a factor at all when 75% of the population will have been able to get the vaccine if they wanted to by then, maybe the entire population in the U.S. This is insane. Boston, this is disgraceful. Like you, what you should be doing is having a record number because the race was canceled last year. And you're having it in October this year. So you need to have two races in one. You should be, if, if you're worried about, what are they going to socially distance the runners? I don't think that's going to be happening. So why does it matter if there's 20,000 runners versus 30,000? Unless they're going to have like 2,000 runners, this is absolutely the dumbest thing ever. So unless they're going to socially distance the runners, there's no point in this. At a minimum, they should be having a Boston Marathon on, a, on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Have them on you have the elite race on the first day and then you have the masses on the next day and the next day. They should be putting as many people as possible. This is the most, like, no business would operate this way. You have pent-up demand and you're going to reduce it because you want to try to woke signal to the very rich that you're taking COVID seriously when we've got three different vaccines approved in this country. I mean, it is, I think you raise an interesting point there, Robert, because, yeah, Hugh Brasher, we talked to him uh, a few weeks ago I did an interview with him and he was like, look, the government says we're going to have the, everyone's going to have access to vaccine by October or, you know, by September or whatever. Their race is October 3rd. So it's a week before Boston. They're going full steam ahead. They're like, if everyone's got access to the vaccine, we're going to have this, you know, everything's going to be open back up. Boston's a week later. President Biden did say, I believe this week that they expect every American, there will be enough vaccine doses for every adult American by the end of May. Now, whether you can get that rolled out in time, maybe, but I don't know. I'm curious if you, if things change over the summer that Boston will revise its policy and expand this field, because I do agree. You know, I I said a few months ago on this podcast, 
I was skeptical of Boston even happening. I was so worried and down the dumps about COVID stuff, but now things are starting to turn, or it looks like it. I, I kind of tend to agree with you. I feel like they should be trying to get as many people as they can, but I, I agree there's still some uncertainty. I'm not willing to totally condemn them, you know, still six mounts out from the race. No, I think the opposite would be you plan on having a big field, and then for if, if some reason, if COVID is right showing itself to be immune, but based on what we know, this vaccine prevents all death from COVID. So this is insanity to me. This is just really disappointing. And I'm not saying, don't, I don't want anyone accusing me of being a COVID denier. I'm still very concerned about COVID. I have not had the vaccine. Um, and until I do, I'm going to be very worried about it. I'm actually was hesitant to agree to stream this meet tomorrow because um, I don't want to bring back COVID to the house. Now, it's going to be an empty stadium, so I don't understand why I'd be interacting with anyone. But I pretty much haven't interacted with anyone except for my family, um, except when I go to the grocery store so, you know, or pick up food. So I take it seriously, but based on follow the science, which I've been told to do for over a year now, you know, this doesn't make much sense in any shape of the fashion. All right, let's run nation. I don't even, has Wells even been on this podcast? Was he briefly on early on? I think he was. Podcast listeners, if you haven't heard Weldon or if you've only heard him for a brief moment, it's because he's been calling people trying to help me stream this meet. Because I claim that I could stream it and broadcast it, providing commentary all at once. So hopefully it works out tomorrow. Please tune in. 5.30 for the women. 6 p.m. for the men. Free stream. Helping grow the sport. Yeah, Robert. No, it's interesting, Robert. I'm, part of me is like curious to see how you do this and to see you put your money where your mouth is. And then part of me is like, oh, shoot, Robert has drafted me in to be like a color commentator. I'm going to have to be a part of this and I'm going to have to take some of the blame if it sucks. So now I'm a little nervous. My, my plan is just to do what we did for the, like, the Valencia world record attempt this summer, which the VIP subscribers got to see. We had a, we had a watch show. So I'll have the camera there. I'm streaming the race. And we're talking about the race. We're just—it'll be like me, you, and Weldon talking like we normally do. You know, I don't want to try to act like I'm Al Michaels. Um, we'll have the pacing light. We'll be analyzing how do they look. You know, etc. Right. I like talking to you, Robert. You pitched—you pitched me on it. I'm in. All right, all right, guys, gals. Till next time. Don't get COVID.